Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. The Knot is where you'll find vendors for every wedding. Floral to fawn over. Cakes you almost don't want to cut. Oh, it looks so good. DJs to drop it to. Venues worthy of your grid. Photographers that make every hour golden hour. Really, vendors for any vibe. With the help of fresh reviews and a few useful filters, you can find your vendors faster than you can say, I do. The Knot Vendor Marketplace. Find vendors for every wedding at thenot.com slash audio. And welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Catherine Jellison on the show, and we'll be talking about her terrific new book, It's Our Day, America's Love Affair with the White Wedding, 1945 to 2005. I myself had a white wedding, and I remember even at the time thinking how it was rather odd that my wife and I were playing at Lords and Ladies. Uh, we're modern people. I'm a modern man. She's a modern woman. We're both successful professionals. She's more successful than I am, but I don't begrudge her that. Uh, Yet nonetheless, despite all of our good liberal credentials, we were um, dressed up like uh, Prince Charles and Lady Di. Uh, Not exactly, but something like that. I I thought it was odd at the time, and I imagine she did too, although uh, much fun was had by all. Um, Like I say, I, I didn't really understand it, but now I do, because I read Catherine's book, and we should thank her for writing it. She does a terrific job of explaining how this peculiar institution um, weathered the storm of ideological change and social change through the post-war years. Uh, The White Wedding is, in a certain sense, our mirror, and we should, again, be very happy that Catherine showed it to us. So I really enjoyed talking to her, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine. Uh, You are in Ohio, is that correct? That's correct. That is correct. Yes, I suspect that the weather there is much like it is here. That is cold. It's very cold, um, much colder than it usually is mid-November. Yeah, I should tell our listeners that we have Catherine Jellison on the show today, and we'll be talking about her terrific new book, It's Our Day, America's Love Affair with the White Wedding, 1945 to 2005. Um, while we're on the topic of the Midwest, since you're in Ohio, I really liked the fact that in the acknowledgments to your book, you you had some words of praise for the beautiful landscape in the Midwest. That was mm-hmm. very, very, I always appreciate that, being a native Midwesterner myself. So ah. kudos to you. Um, although I won't encourage people to move to the Midwest. We, we like it just fine here. Um, so anyway, if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and where you went to school and your mentors and how um, you came to write your previous book and this book, we'd really appreciate it. 
Okay, Marshall. Speaking of the Midwest, I am a native Midwesterner. I grew up in Kansas, actually in a part of Kansas uh, that many people probably don't think of as the Midwest, but the West. I grew up in western Kansas in a town called Hayes. Mm -hmm. And um, my dad was uh, an administrator at um, the Regents institution out in that part of the state, Fort Hayes State University. So I grew up a faculty brat, and um, we had a lot of conversations about history growing up around the dinner table and growing up in uh, a place where there was a lot of history from um, the Homestead Act period and uh, the so-called Indian Wars period after the Civil War. Uh, going around to museums and uh, when we would take family trips across country, stopping at oh, places like uh, Lincoln's House in Springfield, mm -hmm. Illinois, etc. Uh, we were just a family that um, talked about history a lot, believe it or not, as dinnertime conversation. And my maternal grandparents, uh, for most of the time I was growing up, just lived down the street. And both uh, my mother's father and her mother were very interested in history and liked to do the same kinds of things on vacations as my parents, which is, you know, stop by um, state historical society sites or national um, history sites. And so it, it was uh, just something that uh, was a part of my growing up experience. So I had always been interested in, in history and uh, as an undergraduate, had a double major in history and English at the aforementioned Fort Hayes State University. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, went to, um, I earned my master's degree at the University of Nebraska, so mm -hmm. I stayed in the Plains States and, and pretty much thought I would focus on, uh, on 19th century um, women's history and wrote a master's thesis um, about the history of, of the YWCA there in Lincoln, Nebraska, mm -hmm. and uh, decided uh, to go for my Ph.D. elsewhere and uh, that had a, a stronger program specifically in U.S. women's history. And, mm -hmm. of course, uh, my Ph.D. mentor, Linda Kerber, who is a, a professor of history at uh, University of Iowa, uh, was uh, one of the, the names that I sought out in terms of leaders in the field of U.S. women's history, and um, I did apply to other programs, but of the programs I applied to uh, and was accepted in, Iowa was definitely the most attractive in terms of whom I would be working with mm -hmm. as an advisor and also the assistantship package. So some more Midwestern boosterism here. <laughs> um, it was an ideal graduate experience. I'm so glad things worked out the way they did. And while I was there at the University of Iowa, I took a research seminar my first semester there with Shell Stromquist, mm -hmm. who is also still a professor there at uh, University of Iowa. Mm -hmm. And it was a uh, seminar in U.S. social history, and he really acquainted me with the archives there at the um, 
State Historical Society of Iowa branch mm-hmm. in Iowa City. Mm-hmm. And um, I followed up my interest in 19th century women's organizations by doing research in um, papers there at um, the Historical Society uh, dealing with the Women's Christian Temperance Union there mm-hmm. in eastern Iowa. And I, in casting about for a dissertation topic, I went in to talk to my advisor, Linda Kerber, and said, well, I suppose I, I'll keep going with these topics that I have investigated in the past mm-hmm. in my master's thesis and in the research seminar with Shell, uh, you know, women in uh, 19th century women's organizations. Mm-hmm. And she started in, in that Linda Kerber probing way asking me what uh, had attracted me to women's organizations of the 19th century, what particularly attracted me to the 19th century. And her questions as as we went on in this conversation became more and more skeptical. And so <laughs> we took the conversation in another direction. And um, she liked the idea of, of looking at rural women because one of the uh, WCTU, Women's Christian Temperance Union, uh, chapters that I had looked at was in a small uh, farming community um, there in eastern Iowa, and I said I, I enjoyed that research very much, So, and, and I knew there were many materials available there in Iowa City for doing research on rural women, 19th mm-hmm. or 20th century, and well, especially now, uh, since my time there at Iowa in the 1980s, there is now uh, a Iowa Women's Archives, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at that time, uh, there there were available to me there in Iowa City just some things at the library's special collections um, and there at, at the branch of the Historical Society, but lots of things, farm women's letters and diaries and um, papers from rural women's organizations and this kind of thing. And so uh, Linda and I really latched on to the idea of sticking with uh, rural women as as my population. And then the more we talked, we moved up into the 20th century and probably a couple of conversations down the road. uh, I started talking about maybe uh, the way adoption of the automobile changed rural Midwestern women's lives. Mm -hmm. And then Maybe within another couple of conversations, we broadened that to general uh, 20th century technology, mm-hmm. transportation, household technology, and communication technology. And so I ended up writing a dissertation that was entitled, Entitled to Power, uh, Farm Women and Technology, 1913 to 1963, mm-hmm. which became my first book in... Um, the Gender and Culture Series at the University of North Carolina Press. Mm -hmm. And uh, I certainly did end up using a lot of the materials available to me there in Iowa City, but Linda also encouraged me to apply for fellowships elsewhere, and I broadened the geographic focus to the Midwest in general, back to the topic of the Midwest Mm -hmm. again, and um, ended up going to archives Um, throughout the Midwest and eventually um, applied for and received a pre-doctoral 
fellowship at the Smithsonian Institution mm -hmm. to be based at uh, the National Museum of American History, mm -hmm. and uh, which is conveniently, I, it has recently been refurbished and opening for the first time in two years, mm -hmm. uh, but it's still at the same location, although with spiffier digs than when I was there, now <laughs> after this major rehab, it's in, in um, great proximity to uh, the National Archives building, which at that time, uh, in the late 80s, um, included Department of Agriculture mm -hmm. materials. Now, those have, have since been then moved to a, the new facility in College Park, Maryland. But at mm -hmm. that time, I could do my research over at uh, the Museum of, of uh, American History and then walk down the mall a ways to the National Archives. And um, I also did uh, research there at the Library of Congress. And so that was an invaluable experience. It was interesting that a, a lot of the materials that uh, originated in the Midwest actually ended up in Washington, D.C., letters from Midwestern farm women to, for instance, uh, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, um, surveys by Department of Agriculture agencies mm -hmm. that um, included the answers to the survey questions by Midwestern farm women. And then another component of that research uh, was going out and doing oral histories, which was my first uh, acquaintance with that kind of research. And uh, this, again, is the late 1980s. So women who had survived the Great Depression and World War II on the farm, which mm -hmm. were a couple of key era, eras for technological change, um, and, and of course, disruption in uh, typical farm family life, um, a lot of those women were um, still... Um, alive and healthy and able to uh, be oral history narrators for mm -hmm. me, and, and those those were great experiences. I feel that in some ways um, I was there at the right place at the right time because in the 20 years since, uh, of course, that generation has, mm -hmm. many have passed from the scene. Uh, one of the oldest women I interviewed had been born in 1903 in a sod house in Kansas. Mm, wow. uh, and of course, I'm sure she's no longer uh, with us. She was the daughter of exodusters, um, mm -hmm. former slaves from the South who had moved out to Kansas in the late 1870s uh, to take up homestead land mm -hmm. in, uh, in what they considered the promised land, and being a native of Kansas, I can I can make the joke. And you know what? They thought the promised land was Kansas. <laughs> uh, and of course, I would agree with that. I, I think most people that wouldn't be their uh, vision of milk and honey life out on the Great Plains mm -hmm. uh, in a thought house. But uh, so I had some really interesting experiences doing that dissertation, which became my first book. And um, with Linda's guidance. Um, I, I really felt I had a first-rate experience in using archival sources. My, I also had a mentor at the Museum of American History, Pete Daniel, who is uh, currently the president of the Organization of American Historians, uh, so another very prominent mm -hmm. American historian. Um, and he, he was so helpful in uh, guiding me to appropriate archival sources there in the Washington, D.C. area. Mm -hmm. And so after that experience of the dissertation slash book, I, I felt I really um, 
knew how to approach an archive, um, knew how to uh, be a detective, if you will, mm -hmm. in, in the archives, and, uh, and this experience in, in doing oral history research also was, um, with the first book, was so beneficial uh, to my experience then doing research for the second book, because I relied again uh, to a great extent on oral history research and uh, archival research. And, and uh, something else I'd done with the first book, which is look at a lot of the prescriptive literature in the farming magazines mm -hmm. and reports from uh, the Extension Service telling farm women what they should be doing and what they should be buying, mm -hmm. and uh, discovered a gap between the, per you know, the prescription and the lived reality. Um, so it was those same sorts of categories of evidence, oral history evidence, archival evidence, prescriptive literature evidence, those were probably my three main categories of evidence uh, that I used in the second book, and then in addition to that, um, something I wasn't able to indulge in in the first book because of the, so much anyway, because of the nature of the topic. In the second book, um, the use of pop culture evidence, movies mm -hmm. and television programs and internet sources. Of course, when I wrote the first book, the internet <laughs> basically didn't exist for most of us. Mm -hmm. So um, so I, I had... Um, I had some new experiences with the second book, but uh, certainly my experiences during the research and, and the writing of the first book um, laid down some important patterns for the way I approached the second mm -hmm. uh, book topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I should say that uh, I didn't know you were from Kansas, because I'm from Kansas, too. Oh, where are you from? Yeah, well, I'm from, actually, my people are uh, from Chase County, uh, which is in the Flint Hills, and I grew up in Wichita. Uh, okay. But I spent some time in western Kansas, usually hunting pheasants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, don't mm -hmm. you, I don't know if you ever did any of that, but I did a lot of it when I was oh, young. Oh, my gosh. My, well, my dad is, uh, was. Um, he's, he's now disabled and, and can no longer do these kinds of things. But when growing up, he was a pheasant hunter par excellence. Yeah. So I never went on those trips, but I was often at home when he came back from them, and uh, my mother had about a thousand different recipes for uh, <laughs> Kansas game birds, yeah, no, exactly. and quail, and doves, yeah. and uh, and I remember the mud, and, the, and yeah. uh, uh, oh, uh, well, I like I said, I was there when he'd come home from those experiences, so uh, mm -hmm. I, I know something about the aftermath. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I used to, before I was actually able to hunt myself, I was uh, always assigned the task of cleaning whatever had been killed. Ah, that was yeah. my uh, end of the stick. And it was a yeah. short end, I have to tell you. <laughs> um, just one quick question. Sure. Uh, since um, I'm just a little bit, I've always been curious about, you mentioned these uh, African-American homesteaders in Kansas. Yeah. And I know this is a little bit off topic, but while I have an expert, I, I kind of want to ask. Okay. There, there's a place called Nicodemus right. in Kansas. Right? And we, uh, I remember going there when I was young. I mean, mm -hmm. It's basically gone now. But yeah. is this part of the Nicodemus movement? or? This yeah, and, and that's the only exodester community that survived mm -hmm. uh, into our own time. As you say, it's, it's mostly gone now, but that's why I interviewed uh, the woman I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, and the entire town is now on uh, the is part of the uh, National Historic 
right. Is it really? I didn't yeah. know that. Huh. Just, uh, yeah, but the entire town, because it's the only surviving um, exodusters community. So that that was interesting doing the research there and, and visiting that community. I guess growing up a couple of times, uh, we had driven through there, probably coming back from visiting somewhere where my dad was was pheasant hunting and the family yeah. had gone along uh, not to hunt but to hang out with yeah. you know other people with other uh you know family members who mm -hmm. weren't hunting and so i'd driven through there a couple of times as a kid probably but mm -hmm. uh, that was uh interviewing that particular woman who was the oldest resident of nicodemus wow. was uh, my only time you know, spending uh, a significant amount of time there. That's remarkable. Yeah. Is there a good book on Nicodemus? Has somebody tackled this topic? Yes, there is, and it's probably here on my shelf right now. Really? And I'm, I'm well. There, there's one by Nell Irvin Painter, which I believe the title is just Exodusters, and it includes material about the Nicodemus community. And I'm walking over here to my African American history shelf. Now, see, I, my office is not the most organized. That could have ended up on my farm women's shelf, which mm -hmm. is at the other side of the room. And I am not talking to you from a cordless phone, but luckily <laughs> the phone I'm on has a long cord. Um, this works very yeah. well. This works very well on the radio, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, there is a book. Um, that I'm not seeing right now, I might while our conversation continues, that is specifically about the Nicodemus community. But uh, a good um, starting place would, would be the Nell Irvin mm -hmm. Painter book, and it's just entitled Exodusters. Mm -hmm. And then the book I'm thinking about tells about um, and has photographs of the history of this Nicodemus community, and I do cite it in my first book. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it and it talks about the process by which the town was was named uh, a national historic site. Anyway, I can't think of, okay. uh, of of the author right now. But as I said, if my eyes happen upon the book while we're still talking today, I'll I'll grab it and give you the title. Yeah, I just wondered because uh, we have a, a student here who's studying an African American mining community in Iowa called oh. Michicanic. I had never heard of Michicanic. Oh but I had no heard of Nicodemus, and I, I, you know, I'm not an American historian myself, I'm a Russian historian, but mm -hmm. I was always interested in it because it seemed like such a, a, a strange, strange, maybe not be the right word, a, a kind of oddity in the middle of, of Kansas to have this African-American right. community. Right, but, and I think a lot of people back in Kansas, uh, because it is such a small community, might not be familiar with it. There was a, a, a book um, that I think was just called Great Plains that came out in the late 80s um, by a writer for the New Yorker whose first name is Ian. I can't think of his last name right now. Don't know. Hmm. Anyway, uh, in his travels through the Great Plains, he uh, one of the places he stops is uh, oh here it is. I see his book here on the shelf. Um, he stops in Nicodemus and he talks about Ian Fraser. Mm -hmm. Ian Fraser is the author, and the title of the book is simply Great Plains. Mm -hmm. And he talks about his stop in Nicodemus, and he he's there for one of their reunion days when mm -hmm. people, uh, you know, most people who have roots back in Nicodemus don't live there anymore. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, he he comes in on one of these reunion 
days, um, mm -hmm. the only white person there, yeah. uh, who um, meets the children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren of people who used to live there mm, and great. maybe themselves at one point lived there. So yeah, that's, that's, that's another book that has information about yeah. this. Community. It's funny, and I, I know this is, again, more digression, and we will get to your book in just a moment, <laughs> but people always think of places like Kansas as very uh, homogeneous, but they're really yeah, not. That's um, right. They, they just aren't. And, and uh, you know, I, I grew up two blocks from Temple Emanuel, and my best okay. friend was Rob Cohen, and, you know, I mean, there's, a, there was, there's obviously a historically black section of Wichita, and, and there's also a historically Hispanic section. It's, it's, not as if, uh, right. it's not as if these things don't exist in, in the Midwest, but the image that you get usually from the East or West Coast press is a place right. of, of a whole bunch of, of, uh, of, of, of white people. Exactly. <laughs> that, just, exactly. That, just, that just isn't true at all. And, you know, as you know from the 19th century, and something I've learned from my Americanist colleagues here is, is that, you know, in the 19th century, the, the, the notion of whiteness itself was, was ill-formed in the Midwest because there were Germans and there were Scots and there were Irish, and people knew these distinctions very well. Exactly. Yeah. And they still do in some of these communities uh, yeah, on the Great Plains. That is certainly true. Yeah, it's quite true. So anyway, let's turn to the uh, book at hand. Mm -hmm. And um, I would like you to begin by uh, talking about something, again, more digression, that's not in the book, but I think the listeners would be interested in it, and I'm sure you know the, the story of this. What is the origin of the white wedding itself? Well, it is popularly attributed to Queen Victoria when she married Prince Albert in uh, 1840. Um, it's not that she was the first person to wear a white dress when she got married. That's probably not the case. Uh, but she was the first person whose nuptials uh, were heavily publicized, who mm -hmm. had this kind of wedding with a specially made white dress and, and the other major components of what today we, we call the formal white wedding, you know, multiple attendants, a multi-tiered cake, um, you know, flower-bedecked mm -hmm. um, location, um, just all of, of what we now consider the givens of uh, a formal wedding. She mm -hmm. was the first person who had this kind of, of wedding and uh, and publicized it to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So she is uh, the person that is is popularly considered the inventor of the white wedding. Mm -hmm. And then it spreads through uh, English culture and makes its way across the Atlantic to America. I mean, does it also spread to the... I don't know how people get married in Europe except in the Soviet Union. It's quite different there. Mm -hmm. Or the ex-Soviet Union. Is, is, is the white wedding now a kind of... Do, do people, you know, here's one way to put it. Do people in Japan have white weddings? Yes, they do. <laughs> uh, in fact, Asia is the fastest growing um, market for white weddings and the former Soviet bloc as well. Yeah. Um, in fact, my first visit to the former Soviet bloc uh, was to the former East Germany in 1994. And one of the first things I saw, I believe it was in hmm, Dresden. Yeah. Uh, one of the first things I, I saw touring that city was a, a woman, you know, walking through the streets <laughs> with her bridal party, uh, having her picture taken in her glamorous long white gown. Yeah, so that was the summer of 1994. Uh, and so, yeah, the former Eastern Bloc and um, and in Asia, we see the growing markets for this kind of wedding. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, in, in Japan, this has been the case for a while, uh, Taiwan as well. South Korea, uh, and now in China, mm -hmm. uh, the typical situation is a traditional 
uh, Chinese or Korean or Japanese-style wedding, and then a second wedding celebration in the Western style mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. with the tuxedo, the mm. white wedding gown. And so when we talk about the expense of formal weddings in this country, it's nothing compared to uh, many locations in Asia where they're paying not only for uh, the white-style Western ceremony, but <clears throat> excuse me, their own traditional ceremony as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, but back to your <clears throat> excuse me previous question. Um, yeah, uh, the Queen Victoria style of wedding uh, was popular in uh, Western Europe and, uh, of course, in Britain and in the United States among members of the elite as the 19th century progressed. I'm going to have to take a sip of water here. Oh, please do, yes. And uh, let me ask a question while you do. Uh, how mm -hmm. common were white weddings prior to 1945? 1945 is the uh, moment at which your book really picks up. Mm -hmm. How, how mm -hmm. common were they? What, what classes of people, what kinds of people? Well, again, um, it would be people who had the means to, to be able to have a wedding like, like that. Um, so uh, elite people from a variety of backgrounds, if they had the, the financial wherewithal, they wanted to have weddings like this. Um, and in certain ethnic groups, it was considered the uh, appropriate thing to do, which is, you know, have uh, a rather large wedding that all members of your community participate paid in and came to as guests, mm -hmm. but um, it, for people who were not wealthy, what this usually meant was um, a lot of homemade uh, items, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, a homemade cake or wedding meal and uh, music produced by friends and family members, mm -hmm. and maybe maybe the wedding dress might be purchased or it might be homemade as well. As the term I use in the book is, for most people prior to 1945, formal white weddings were a patchwork, uh, those who had it, had <clears throat> those who had such weddings, a patchwork of home-produced and purchased items. Mm -hmm. The idea of you know, purchasing all the accoutrements of an elaborate white wedding is something that's very much a post-war phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is not original with me. Another scholar came up with this term. Uh, the wedding industrial complex mm -hmm. only develops after World War II, and it's part of uh, the consumer culture that, as Barbara Ehrenreich says, after World War II, uh, came to crowd out all other cultural possibilities. Mm -hmm. It's not that a, a consumer culture hadn't existed in the United States previous to the end of World War II. It's just now more people can participate in it because of the increase in uh, average income after the war. And it's also the era of family togetherness, speaking mm -hmm. of the prescriptive literature. All the women's magazines are talking about, you know, we've, we've made it to the Depression, we've made it through the war, now it's time to, to create the ideal American family life that we have been deprived of all these years. And so family-oriented consumerism, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the family vacation, the taking the kids to Disneyland, the, oh, let's you know, buy a new house in the suburbs, let's make sure that we 
buy a second car so mm -hmm. mom can take the kids to all of their various lessons and after school activities. Uh, the the amount of family-oriented spending as a result of the prosperous post-war economy, but also because of these cultural messages that are out there, family-oriented spending just uh, goes up dramatically after World War II. And in many ways, the elaborate white wedding is the best example of this kind of family-oriented post-war spending. Mm -hmm. So then would you say that, generally speaking, the uh, white wedding was democratized then in the 1940s and 50s. It spread throughout. It became kind of an expectation right. for people. Yeah, no, exactly. I see just what you mean. What What do the, um, you know, we we don't, yeah, I've been married myself and uh, and am married. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I dressed up and we had a white wedding and so on and so forth. Um, I, I can't say that I understood any of the symbolism. I, I really didn't. What, what did people think in the 1940s and 50s as they were adopting this new style of wedding for the first time? Did, did they were they conscious of the fact that they were playing a role, or what, what? What did they think about what they were doing? Well, one of my arguments is that it uh, this kind of ceremony is perfect for the post-war period, where one of the cultural messages is again after the disruption of the depression and the war, it's time to reassert so-called traditional gender roles. Mm -hmm. And it is a ceremony that very much plays into those roles, right? You have a woman wearing a, a dress, especially in the 1950s, the dress style with the uh, you know big skirt and the, the cinched-in waist and the neckline that emphasizes the bust. Uh, the, the wedding gown style of the 1950s very much accentuates mm -hmm. the femaleness of the bride's body, mm -hmm. accentuates the secondary sexual characteristics. Mm -hmm. And one scholar has said every woman of this period walked up the aisle a bride but walked back down at a housewife, mm -hmm. regardless of whether she worked outside the home or went to school or what other roles she had in her life, the prescriptive literature says your ultimate role as the American woman is to be the, the housewife and mother and take advantage of this opportunity we have to, to be a stay-at-home wife and mother uh, who can buy all the wonderful products that every American home should have. Mm -hmm. So uh, very much the act of even going out and buying the items for the wedding was seen as an introduction to the role of housewife consumer in this period. Mm -hmm. Now, the, in, oh, excuse I'm, me. I'm sorry. The, the logistical organization of these weddings in the 1940s and 50s. Now, today, of course, when I was married, my, I hate to say it, but my, my wife uh, took care of everything and with gusto. She did not expect me really to do very much of anything except, you know, help pick the restaurant or something. Was it the case in the 1940s and 50s that, uh, that the logistical arrangement of the marriage itself was taken care of by the bride and her family? Yes. Uh, again, the, the etiquette books uh, and other prescriptive sources said that this is supposed to be what the bride's family does. Really, the bride and her mother and some other members of her female entourage make all the arrangements and, and you know, are the consumers, but the providers of the resources that the consumers will use will be the men in the family, specifically mm -hmm. the bride's father. So the whole ritual around the ritual, if you will, the consuming for the wedding ritual was set up according to female consumer role 
male provider role. Mm-hmm. And, and one psychiatrist of the period even said, again, this is a way for a man to reassert his masculinity after uh, the Depression and the war. He's back home, he's in charge of the family, providing for the family, being the family breadwinner. And so, this psychiatrist said, if a man complains about the amount of money he's spending on his daughter's wedding, he's not really complaining, he's bragging. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, this this whole ritual uh, and the preparations for the ritual of the white wedding, I would argue, very much set up starkly contrasting gender roles. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the bride is wearing a white garment, although this was not... Uh, in Queen Victoria's time, necessarily the meaning of that white garment, but people had come to understand the white garment as a sign of the bride's sexual purity, Mm -hmm. you know, that she will not have had sexual experience outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, then let's let's move forward in time just a little bit uh, to the the late 1950s and 60s, uh, the moment at which um, women's liberation uh, Mm -hmm. becomes an important... um, uh, Part of the story. There's some terminology that you use in the book that I, I wasn't particularly familiar with, and I think that our listeners might not be familiar with either, but I, I, I sense that there was a story back there. And that terminology is first and second and third wave feminism. Um, oh, yeah. I, I confess my ignorance about this. I studied the 16th and 17th century, you know, in <laughs> so we don't have that. So could you talk just a little bit about those things? Because they okay. powerfully affect the story. Okay. Well, um now, these, uh, I have to be the typical historian and give this whole thing a little nuance, um, and that is that these are problematic terms, okay? And not everyone is attached to these terms or approves of these terms, but they are still largely the ones that are used by historians of American women because they're the ones everyone's familiar with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is debate about whether these are the appropriate terms. So Mm -hmm. I'll basically define the waves for you. Mm -hmm. First wave feminism um, culminates in the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, Mm -hmm. giving women the right to vote in 1920, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, so... Although the term feminism is a 20th century term, it is a movement that actually had started back in 1848 with the first women's rights meet, uh, meeting in Seneca Falls, New York. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And the first time uh, that there's a formal call for giving women the right to vote. So we could say roughly 1848 to 1920 is first wave mm-hmm. uh, feminism. And then here is, is one of the reasons why designating the feminist movement as having waves is problematic. It's not that the feminist movement then just, you know, the wave hit the sand, and and that was the end of it for the next, uh, you know, 45 years or something. Uh, There were women who defined themselves as feminists uh, between 1920 and and the 1960s and second wave uh, feminism, and there are many ways in which these women acted on their feminism in this time period. So it's not like it disappeared uh, between 1920 and, say, 1963, mm-hmm. which is oftentimes used as the starting date for second wave feminism. But we might call it a rejuveni- uh, rejuvenated uh, feminist movement beginning in about 1960. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when the Equal Pay Act is uh, signed into law by President Kennedy. That's the year in which Betty Friedan publishes her best-selling book that is a critique of 
uh, stay-at-home wifedom mm-hmm. and motherhood, uh, the feminine mystique. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a typical way for defining then the end of the second wave is when um, the Equal Rights Amendment goes down to final defeat in 1982. Mm-hmm. So let's say general dates 1953 to 1982, because that became just like the 19th Amendment had been for first wave feminism. Uh, second wave feminism had rallied around this cause of an Equal Rights Amendment mm-hmm. to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And then third wave would be uh, the period after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, women who came of age, you know, came into adulthood in the 1980s and onward and defined themselves as, as feminists mm-hmm. would uh, be members of the third wave. Mm-hmm. And we are in the third wave today? Well, mm-hmm. and that's up to debate, too, open to debate. Some people say we're, you know, we're now into a fourth wave, even. And... Um, the the definition of first of all whether or not there is a fourth wave and when that begins is is something that's mm-hmm. highly debated right now. But again, much of it seems to be tied to my old friend consumer culture mm-hmm. uh, that for women um, who are, have come of age now, or let's say college age students now who came of age in uh, the 21st century, mm-hmm. or, or maybe even the late 20th century, that for them, feminism is sort of a, uh, is, is very much tied to consumer power, that one is defined by uh, buying the appropriate objects that show one is um, has earning power herself, um, has power over her own sexuality. Some people have called it sex in the city feminism. Mm-hmm. If you if you get that picture, I do. Yeah. Uh, yes. Others, however, say well, the fourth wave is really all, uh, much more tied to the gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual movement, mm-hmm. and has rallied around the notion of same-sex marriage being mm-hmm. uh, legalized. So, um, well, maybe you didn't know the. the the can of worms you were opening up no, and I asking didn't. these questions. Yeah, it, it is very, it gets complex and debatable. No, I, I, I didn't know mm-hmm. at all. Uh, I find it fascinating. We discuss these issues a lot around uh, my house. My, my wife is the primary breadwinner in our mm-hmm. house, and you know we divide childcare and all other stuff e- equally. But it's it's you know it's still in the process of being worked out. Even even here at the the university, that it's discussed a lot. You know we we're trying to create uh, gender equality now, which is a kind of a, uh, it, it turns out to be a, a very sticky thing to try to, to, uh, to institute. But anyway, let's, right. let's, let's talk about the, the second wave then. What impact did the second wave that started in 1963 have on uh, perceptions of weddings and weddings in practice and the wedding industrial complex? Well, the second wave tried to have a major impact on the wedding industrial complex and uh, to complicate matters further, there are, are two branches of second wave feminism, the more uh, moderate women's rights-oriented uh, feminism, which was all about, you know, equal pay, uh, you know, public legal rights, this mm-hmm. kind of thing. And then the women's liberation or radical feminist branch, which was about redefining what we mean by male and female in this society, recognizing that there's social constructions uh, masculinity and femininity, and that as social structure uh, constructions, they can be rethought mm-hmm. and and remade. 
So one of the the first acts uh, of guerrilla theater by members of the women's liberation branch of second wave feminism occurred at uh, a bridal fair held in Madison Square Garden in 1969. Members of a group called Witch, Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, (laughs) invaded... um, invaded this bridal show. Uh, They wore black veils as opposed to white veils. They carried placards uh, with catchy slogans like uh, along the lines of uh, always a bride, always a slave, this Mm -hmm. kind of thing, a critique of marriage and marriage in a, a white wedding ceremony that seemed to as I mentioned before, starkly differentiate gender roles. Mm-hmm. And uh, and particularly, of course, the whole idea of, of the virginal bride. Mm-hmm. They um, also um, disrupted the bridal fair by opening a cage uh, filled with white mice. Mm-hmm. And the mice scurried about the uh, vendors and the attendees there at the bridal fair. Mm-hmm. And so there were attempts by second wave feminists to rethink this ceremony, uh, not only rethink its general messages, but uh, there was a huge critique of consumer culture that was part of second wave feminism. Mm-hmm. And uh, telling women, you don't need to buy the false eyelashes, you don't need to buy the curlers, you don't need to to buy all the uh, the makeup products that you see advertised in the magazines and on television, et cetera. And you certainly don't have to buy these particular items to get married. And, of course, a questioning of uh, so-called traditional marriage in the first place, which mm-hmm. was the kind of thing you were talking about a minute ago, rethinking, well, who's the provider, who's the consumer, who takes care of the kids, who mm-hmm. waxes the floor, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were attempts made by second-wave feminists to... Um, to raise people's consciousness uh, about the white wedding ceremony and about the wedding industrial complex and and, uh, alerting people to the fact that they could uh, protest the wedding industrial complex Mm -hmm. and they they could be resistors. Uh, And there was something by the early 70s called the New Wedding Movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was short-lived and uh, never had a huge following, but it was the idea of of people trying to organize to resist the wedding industrial complex by um, making their own wedding invitations, making their own wedding clothes, Mm -hmm. uh, writing their own vows, um, having your reception as as a picnic, uh, when Abby Hoffman, the, the 60s radical, married for uh, the second time, uh, he got married in Central Park, and he and his, his wife, you know, uh, their reception afterwards was uh, everyone uh, lit up their joints and smoked marijuana <laughs> in Central Park. You know, so uh, there was even, believe it or not, an etiquette book on how to do a new wedding. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, as I characterize it in my book, I call it a, a, an etiquette book for, for marriage-minded bohemians. Uh, you know, how to go about writing your own vows uh, that, that, that take out all uh, reference to traditional gender roles. Mm-hmm. Um, how to, uh, you know, make organic food for your reception, uh, how to make your wedding invitations out of, you know, recycled paper and this kind of thing. But at the same time that weddings like this 
write the Abby Hoffman wedding, mm -hmm. uh, make it into the newspapers, and receive a lot of publicity in uh, the press and in the era's pop culture, the majority of Americans still weren't uh, resisting the wedding industrial complex, regardless of, well, it's sort of a convergence of, of second-wave feminist ideology and uh, um, uh, the influence of the era's counterculture as well, mm -hmm. really combined to create this um, new wedding movement. But mm -hmm. e even though, you know, this uh, idea is out there, most people remain wedded, pardon the pun, to mm -hmm. the white wedding. And we see by the early 70s, uh, this, this book, The New Wedding, is published in 1973, um, the vast majority of weddings are, um, you know, formal ceremonies, white gown, uh, father guiding, <laughs> escorting the bride down mm -hmm. the aisle, uh, the, the traditional wedding vows. Uh, in fact, white wedding gowns uh, were more popular than ever if you go by the sales statistics mm -hmm. uh, gathered by the wedding industry at the time. So um, the second wave feminist movement, the new wedding movement, didn't end up having much of an impact yeah, on well, the wedding industrial complex. Well, why do you think that is? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I think because in, in the late 1940s, certainly through the 1950s and the early 1960s, the white wedding ceremony had become defined by television, by the movies, uh, the wedding industry itself as the American way to wed. And people had become convinced within a generation's time that this is how you marry mm -hmm. and, and really seem not to be able to envision something else being a real wedding. Mm -hmm. in, in fact, the, the beginning uh, gay and lesbian liberation movement of, of the early 70s, um, we even, and of course these were not legal marriages, they were commitment ceremonies, but the wedding industry was already acknowledging that these could be future customers, because uh, if two women wanted to have a commitment ceremony, they uh, would still go ahead and, and get white gowns. Two men, they would rent the tuxedos. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and uh, Oh, I give lots of examples in the book. Uh, adherence to uh, the black power movement might start out thinking about wearing dashikis and, uh, you know, sing their vows in Swahili or something, but ultimately, well, their parents and their friends said, but that's not a real wedding. You've got to do it like they do in the movies and on TV. Mm -hmm. And, and as, as we see weddings sold to us in the department stores. So I just think uh, this democratization, is, as you said, of the white wedding had become so complete by the late 60s and early 70s, it was difficult for most Americans to imagine another way to do it. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I remember in uh, graduate school, I think I, I read a book or an essay or something by a fellow, a sociologist named Robert Bella about American, I think he called it civic religion. Uh, 
And this is, uh, you know, when the president talks about God in this kind of nondescript way. It's never any particular God. It's just God. And then, you know, we have religious symbols on our money. And, you know, there's right. an occasional religious symbol at the courthouse, whether there should be or not. And, and Bella said that this kind of attenuated, nonspecific uh, uh, sacrality was, was American civic religion. And I can kind of see the white wedding fitting into that picture because it, it does seem as if in the American mind, at least in my mind, that these things go together. If you are in a church getting married, you will be dressed in white and your husband yeah. will be dressed in a tuxedo. This is just the way things ought right. to be. These, right. th- this is, it's very stereotyped and it is impossible to kind of think of it a different way of doing it. Right. I, I think that's exactly right. It, and, and it really does kind of go to the, the core of, this, of Bella's, I think, of Bella's notion of civic religion. I don't know if anybody reads that stuff anymore, but it certainly occurred to me while I was reading your, mm-hmm. your book. Um, now, even though the form of the wedding remained largely the same, did the symbolism change? Did the kind of um, underlying logic of it change? Did people explain what they were doing differently after the second wave? Uh, I, I think they just, yeah, well, they certainly, there was not the expectation that the color of the bride's dress indicated anything about her sexual history or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there was not the assumption that uh, if a father escorted his daughter down the aisle, he was, you know, literally giving up his protection of, of the daughter to her new husband's protection, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it just became, well, this is what you do at weddings. Yeah. And, and it was not, uh, this is one of the reasons I pursued this topic is my second book. I saw committed feminists, my own graduate students, who um, behaved on the one day they married so differently. Mm-hmm out of every other day of their life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they suspended all the rules mm-hmm. of their everyday life uh, on this one day because, well, it's expected you do these things. They don't mean anything anymore. It's mm-hmm. just when you're a bride, you do these things. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to invest it with any kind of political uh, meaning or any or anything. That's just what you do. And, in fact, one of the books I cite in my book uh, came out as I was just finishing my book. It's called I Do But I Don't. Uh, by a woman named Kimi. Uh, I'm not sure if the last name is pronounced Wickoff or Wyckoff, but she talks about being a, a feminist um, who's a, a third, would be a member of the third wave. And all of her ideas that she had literally grown up with at the dinner table, because her mother was a second wave feminist, um, she as she put that she caved when it came time to get married. And she did all the things that all of her peers expected her to, but then ended up regretting it, you know, getting the the white Mm -hmm. gown. She ended up, I think, with nine bridesmaids, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just uh, incredible. And the fact that I think at this point she lived in New York, her fiancé lived in Los Angeles, and her parents lived in Texas. So all the coordinating of this also meant hopping on a plane mm-hmm. quite frequently. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, so this is uh, the amount of money she must have spent on this wedding, while well, her family spent on this wedding. Uh, and, and yet, um, you know, this was, she said she had become the person, another person. She wasn't the person she'd been through, whatever it was, 28 years. Uh-huh. Uh, or 27 years, uh, on that, for that one day she became, 
you know, this uber bride. And <laughs> I had seen this kind of thing happen with so many students of her, uh, of my graduate students who would be her peers. And I wondered, what's going on here? Why do these young women think they have to become this new creature uh, and, and wear clothing like they've never worn before and behave in a way they've never behaved before and do all kinds of things that they've never done before just for this to be a real wedding. Yeah, it is It is peculiar, but I think that, you know, I, I guess I would uh, yeah, I kind of want to th- think a little bit about uh, the way that you put it, which, which is the way I would probably put it, you know, that they, they feel they have to. I mean, in the case of my wife and many of the women I know who are all good feminists, they want to do this. They don't feel pressured to do it. They, they actively seek this out. They want this day to be different. They want to dress up in this way. It's not just – I, I guess what I, I, I'm proposing is not just – it's, it's not a, it, it's not an expectation that they bridle against. It's an expectation they embrace to a certain extent. Yeah, but I guess my argument would be, but they didn't make it up themselves. Oh no, you know, yeah. they've been getting these cultural messages for all these years yeah. that you know creates that want. So yeah. we're back to the consumer culture again. But um, and I do think that one way, and that's interesting, Marshall, that, that you asked that question. I think if we're talking about members of for instance, the third wave, it's uh, oftentimes discussed in a manner of it's it's uh, my my day to celebrate myself. It's a day uh, to do some uh, something special for myself. It's a day where I can be the center of attention and and give some messages about mm-hmm. who I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, make this public declaration of of love for this person I'm marrying, but also show I have, these are my certain tastes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in menu, in bridesmaids wear, in, in bridal wear, uh, and increasingly, of course, women are paying for these events from their own pocketbook mm-hmm. or sharing the cost with their fiancé, uh, and so it has, uh, it also may say something about well, here's my level of professional achievement. Mm-hmm. I can afford to do something like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I think in that way, um, my answer to your uh, earlier question would be, yeah, there are some new meanings attached to uh, a, a white wedding, but it's not sort of taking the old ideas about virginity and uh, paternal uh, protection and, and, and all of that and putting a new spin on that, it's almost as if those ideas aren't even considered at all. But it is instead uh, taking certain um, meanings that previous brides would have never even thought about, you know, these, these meanings of empowerment mm-hmm. and uh, showcasing my identity, my individual identity. Um, I think it, those are some new meanings placed on the white wedding that brides a generation or two ago would have never even it wouldn't have been anywhere on their radar screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I agree with that completely. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I remember when we were arranging our, our wedding that it really was about uh, our self-expression. And, and we, while we were working within a certain genre or a series of tropes or a form, we were adjusting those yeah. tropes and forms in, in what were really kind of minor ways, but we invested 
a great meaning in them, you right. know, like where we chose to eat and, and right. what we chose to say as if anybody would ever remember it, um, right. what sort of officiant we had. You know, the whole thing was, was uh, really about us presenting ourselves to this community. And I also just say, right. interestingly, you mentioned about all the plane flights and things. Having been to a lot of these things, you know, we like to think of weddings as this moment where this community of people come together to consecrate uh, these vows. That community exists for about one day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then they fly home, and that's it. No more yeah. community. <laughs> right. It's not like these earlier weddings I was talking about when it was literally the community surrounding you. Yeah. I think of, of one of the weddings uh, that I uh, – well, I was going to say I discussed in the book. I don't think I do. I think it was in an earlier article I wrote where – the woman was the daughter of, of German immigrants. This is between the two world wars. And she said, well, you know, we never sent out invitations. Everyone just knew if you were German, you came to the wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, the English never came to our wedding, and we never went to theirs. Right. Okay. And, uh, you know, she talked about that she and her mother did go to a department store and, and buy her dress. But, um, you know, her mother and sister made all the food, and people, you know, who had musical skills, played the music, mm-hmm. you know, from the community. It was just, well, this is literally your community. It's your mm-hmm. ethnic and religious community. It was the German, local German Lutheran community back mm-hmm. in the Midwest again, this yeah. in Nebraska. Yeah. And, uh, and, and literally the community, the, the physical community that surrounded this bride and groom. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were their neighbors. And um, so now we've taken this concept to, as you say, sort of the one-day community idea. It really is. I mean, I I know that, uh, you know, in in weddings that I've been to, and and also my own wedding, there were people that came that I was told I was related to them. I'd really never seen them before, but uh, I I was told that that they were my relatives, and then they disappeared, and I don't know where they are now. I was happy to receive their gifts. I I should say one thing, that one fascinating part of the book that we haven't really uh, had a chance to talk about, and we don't really have time to talk about, but I found really interesting, and, and also a little bit in it, so some of the um, kind of hyperbolic presentation is positively, uh, and I'll be a little editorial here, embarrassing. Like your description of um, the Michael Douglas, Catherine Zeta-Jones wedding, mm-hmm. I, th- that that was just uh, – how could they think that that was anything but embarrassing? I mean, the, 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 the degree of falderall that was involved in it, I just it's, – it's astounding to me. I, d- I don't know. And also another thing that you talk about, and I always wondered about this, and I thought it was much older than than than, than – then I learned, and that is the what we call the mergers and acquisitions page in the New York Times, mm. where people announce their weddings. Could you talk just a little bit about the genesis of that? Oh well, um, there, there's always been, you know, a society page where uh, elite people, you know, socialites, would announce their engagement and their weddings. Uh, now it has. There, there's, they still tend to be pretty well-to-do people that. That show up uh, in the uh, the weddings and uh, what I think it's called weddings and celebrations yeah. now because some of them are same-sex commitment ceremonies or if mm-hmm. it's in Massachusetts or Connecticut they're mm-hmm. real they're real weddings mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of having legal standing but um, yeah this has become beginning the early 1990s. Um, almost an extended advertisement for the wedding industrial mm-hmm. complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, uh, by the old 
So sorry, I, I'm picturing like all these old movies where you know there's one woman who works for the newspaper and she's the society editor, yeah. and there's a, a little form that people have to conform to. You know, you you can only spend like three sentences describing the wedding gown or something like this. But typically now they these uh, announcements of of recent weddings and celebrations go into great detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, about you know who designed the gown, what caterer you know did the did the banquet, um, and of course because these do tend to be not you know you know the old social register crowds from the 19th century, the early 20th century, but people of some accomplishment, and they mm-hmm. tend to be you know some of them from wealthy families now, but more members of the meritocracy. I've yeah. noticed. No, that's, uh, that's absolutely right. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I I used to kind of play this game with my wife who went to Harvard, and I'd say. We'll look in the mergers and acquisitions page of the New York Times, and we'll look for classmates of yours. And inevitably, we found one or two. Yeah, People. <laughs> because they, they, they now go into great detail, and this shows that new uh, the new bride. You know, she also is uh, not just someone who's setting up housekeeping. No, somewhere, she's a but trader has, at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, she, she had a very high-powered career, has had a high-powered education. Usually all the schools are listed in the degrees, yeah. and yes, the firm she works for, yeah, no. uh, et cetera. And then this vows column mm-hmm. that started in the uh, early 1990s, uh, which features, um, you know, one wedding in sort of, uh, you know, a whole page to itself or a big portion of one page. Uh, you know, it's like the featured wedding yeah. of the week. Yeah, I know. And, uh, you know, we'll have uh, what's called wedding photojournalism. It's not just a picture of the bride and groom together, but a couple of shots mm-hmm. of, of, you know, uh, of them at the wedding. Uh, you know, either uh, one I remember is uh, the someone who'd worked for the um, Clinton administration when Bill Clinton was president, a picture of, you know, Madeleine Albright yeah. and the bride and the groom and, and both Clintons, you know, they're all shaking hands and hugging in the reception line, yeah. you know, um, the, you know, so it's very, uh, it's highly illustrated and the story of the whole courtship mm-hmm. and, the, and, you know, how they chose the location and, and it's usually, you know, a very upscale location where the wedding and reception are taking place, but sometimes they has a novelty aspect to it. Mm-hmm. For instance, one time a couple that was featured in the Vows uh, feature uh, got married in a Kinko's office <laughs> uh, because that's somewhere where they could uh, teleconference their wedding out to mm-hmm. friends and relatives yeah. who lived all around the country or mm-hmm. uh, a couple who had met at jury duty. Um, you know, getting married in the same courtroom where they had sat as members of the jury together. But mm-hmm. usually it's, uh, you know, those those are the atypical ones. Instead, yeah. the, the weddings that are featured tend to be people of healthy income who mm-hmm. have spent their healthy income on very elaborate weddings. Yeah, no, I, I, I guess coming to kind of conclude uh, with another note about the Midwest, I, I remember when I was growing up, there was a kind of social register, and but it was more like the Jones went to the Smiths for Sunday dinner. Do you remember those? Right, I yeah. certainly do. <laughs> this, this is miles oh, from that. I certainly do. Oh, my God. Yeah, and lists. I always wondered, who thinks... You know, because my family would never do those kind of things. Yeah. But I like I'd read the Smith and the Jones and think, what makes them think 
that that's so important that they have to call it into the paper. Yeah, I don't know, but they did it. I I, I remember it quite well. Anyway, we have taken up a huge amount of your time, and we could talk forever about this book. There are parts of it we didn't even get to. There's a great um, chapter about celebrity weddings, and there's another great chapter about uh, movie weddings. I highly counsel people to look at the book. There are also some really uh, wonderful photos from your own collection that uh, they're just I, th- I think they're priceless, and they and they really add a lot of value to the book. I, I just looked at them with fascination and showed them to my wife. So, um, so uh, as I say, you know, th- thanks very much for being on the show. Let me um, conclude in our traditional way, and that is to ask you, Catherine, what you're um, working on now. Well, I've I've decided what I really am is a historian of um, gender and consumer culture. Mm-hmm. You know, both my books I've written so far deal with that topic, and the next one is uh, about Old Order Amish women in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania in the mm-hmm. 1930s and 1940s. And you might think, well, these women, where do they fit into consumer culture? Uh, but uh, they are people who are consumers, but in ways uh, that are atypical. And in their atypical lives as consumers, they are seen as appropriate role models um, for other women during the years of the Great Depression Mm -hmm. and during World War II. And it's mainly going to be a book about how the federal government and the state government in Pennsylvania uses the uh, image of the Amish woman uh, to a certain extent with Amish women's own cooperation as uh, sort of the role model for women in times of crisis, economic and wartime crisis, because they are women who are already uh, recycling, and they are women who already have victory gardens, for instance, although they don't call them that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, they were the subject of many government studies and publicity campaigns Mm -hmm. about how to be a good Depression era uh, and wartime era wife and mother and housekeeper. And it's particularly interesting uh, in the war years because they are members of a religion that that are pacifists. They're non-resistors. And yet they are are used as as a wartime symbol. Mm -hmm. And then after the war, uh, with with the growth of this family-oriented spending I've been talking about, the women themselves are consumed by the growing post-war Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. tourist industry. Mm -hmm. Oh, go see the Amish women making their quilts or at their roadside stands. So Mm -hmm. it's it's really fascinating stuff. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a great book, and we hope that you come on the show when you're finished with it to talk to us about it. Oh, thank you, Marshall. All right. Well, um, Catherine, thanks very much for being on the show. Uh, The book is It's Our Day, America's Love Affair with the White Wedding, 1945 to 2005. And Catherine Jellison, thanks very much for being on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me, Marshall. Sure. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Catherine Jellison about her new book, It's Our Day, America's Love Affair with the White Wedding, 1945 to 2005. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.